Hello again, my Care Providers Oklahoma colleagues. Uh, Steve Buck, President and CEO of Care Providers Oklahoma, back with a, another episode of Studio CPO. Uh, I am delighted today to have a very special guest. And I would even say that uh, within the advocacy community for nursing homes, our ICF, IID facilities, and assisted livings, Zach, I think you are the social media star <laughs> amongst our cohort of colleagues. Steve, How are I, you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I, I'm going to hire you as my official hype man as I travel the state and the country. Thank you for that introduction. And I really appreciate it. But I think you bring up a good point that social media, I mean, we've really latched on to that, as have you. It's so important, especially today, in sharing our message, whether it's with members, legislators, or the general public. I mean, we've really, really prioritized it, and I know you have in Oklahoma as well. Now, yeah, and I will say to, to our listeners, uh, when, I first, when I first entered the trade association world, which was, uh, Zach, the, uh, the day I started was March 9th, 2020. Um, March the 11th, they stopped the basketball game in Oklahoma City between the Jazz and the Oklahoma City Thunder. I remember. And, yeah, and you and I have lived COVID ever since, right? That's exactly right. But uh, Zach, you, you do have a tremendous social media presence, and I have so appreciated the way that you, A, you, you do a great job of boosting um, boosting the reputation of our members in the entire sector and our ability to deliver outstanding care uh, to those whom entrust us to that care, uh, but your your ability to signal to policymakers uh, those things of importance has always caught my attention. So, so thank you for inspiring me uh, to be stronger in my social media game. Yeah, uh, well, no, I, I really appreciate that, and it, it's not just on me. I mean, we have a terrific team here in Pennsylvania as you do in Oklahoma, that is, again, committed to sharing that message. And, you know, if it's not us, Steve, it's going to be somebody else who's out there, who's talking about this, who's talking about what they need. So, you know, you, t you brought up COVID and the pandemic and the fact that you started two days before the pandemic really began. I mean, I look at that time, especially in 2020, as an opportunity for this sector to take the microphone or the bullhorn, whatever you want to call it, and talk about the injustices that had handicapped this industry for so long. And I know you did it. I know many of our colleagues did it. I know our colleagues at the American Healthcare Association did it. We were out there and we were calling for support and resources and reform. And I'm really proud to say we've seen a lot of that materialize in Pennsylvania as well as across the entire country. Well, let's uh, step back a little bit. I always like for our listeners to have a sense of who our guests are, not just in their professional role, but how they ended up doing what they're doing today. What, what, what was, what was Zach, Zach's career path? How did you end up in this position today? You know, my career path was go to the NBA or Major League Baseball, but at about freshman year of high school, I realized that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so I better find out, I better find uh, you know, what else I can do. And, you know, when I was in college, I graduated from a small liberal arts college right outside the city of Philadelphia in 2010. And it was in, it was during college. It was the Obama McCain presidential um, election 
where I became really invested and involved in politics. And the minute I left college in May 2010, I went to work as a campaign manager. I went right on the campaign trail. And for six months, I worked every single day, you know, 18 hour days, and I loved it. And we won a race for state representative, again, right outside of Philadelphia in 2010. I became a chief of staff. I went back in 2012 to be a campaign manager. And when that campaign was over, I came to work for the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association. And I joined the association as our director of government affairs. Did that for a few years and then came into this role as president and CEO in 2019. And, you know, as you said, the pandemic has really taken up the oxygen over the last, what, three or four years now. But our job, our role as advocates has never been more important than it was throughout the pandemic and as it is today. You know, the, the one other thing I would mention is, and I hope it's going to come out and, and your listeners are going to hear it throughout our conversation. I'm very passionate about what we do, as I know you are. And that passion really comes from my family. Uh, I'm the son of a long-term care nurse. My aunt is a long-term care nurse. Uh, I have cousins who are nurses. And throughout the last four years, I've had grandparents who have spent time in all facets of the long-term care continuum, whether that's a nursing home, personal care home, or assisted living community. So I've seen it up close. I've seen the challenges. I've gone in and talked to staff, talked to other residents, talked to my grandparents. And I want to advocate to ensure that Pennsylvania families and their loved ones can receive the same quality care that my grandparents received over the last few years. I think it's so, so important. And it's why I'm very proud to do what we do. You know, I have to throw in a little pop culture reference here, Zach, if you don't mind. Please. As you were, as you were articulating your, your family's legacy of, of support professionally uh, within the assisted living community, uh, or within the long-term care community, assisted living, nursing care, personal care. I, I had that moment of flashback to the movie, My Cousin Vinny. Have you seen it? <laughs> I have. I have. And Miss, Miss Vito on the stand uh, defending her credential. Um, my father was a mechanic. My uncle was a mechanic. My brothers <laughs> were a mechanic. You, you just basically uh, borrowed from her script. You know, I watched the movie last night. I didn't want you to call me out on it, but that's where I got that entire script. So thank you for, for calling me out. No, I mean, it's true. It's It really is. I grew up in it. I grew up in the business and, and in this sector. And I can remember when I was younger, sitting at the dinner table and hearing about, unfortunately, the same issues that you and I are advocating for today, whether it's yeah. funding or workforce. Now, I didn't understand it when I was in middle school and high school. But I'm very proud that I can go home now and have those conversations. And not only that, say, you know what, here's what we're doing about it. Yeah. Now, for, for your loved ones who have, who have spent um, part of their lives uh, being served within our communities, it's, I, am, I am sure that it's those personal observations and experiences that drive the messaging that you take forward every day to the legislative community, the executive branch. Uh, to the general public there in, in Pennsylvania. What, what's going to be 
Pennsylvania's area of emphasis in the upcoming session? Yeah, there's a lot that's happening right now. So, and and we're a, a really interesting state from a legislative and executive perspective because we have one of the very few, if not only, divided governments in the entire country. So we have a Democratic governor, Governor Josh Shapiro. We have a Republican Senate that is fairly conservative, and we have a Democratic House. But it's a very close Democratic House, meaning we have 203 House members. And currently, because there's a vacancy, our House is tied 101 to 101. So you can imagine what advocacy is like with divided government. We're not in a position in Pennsylvania where we can just get Republican support on an issue or Democratic support on an issue. We've got to go to both sides of the aisle and make our case for various reasons and build the support that way. It's not always easy. It's very, very challenging. There are many stakeholders in Harrisburg and around the state of Pennsylvania. But again, we've been able to achieve a lot of success even with a divided government. The issues for us, Steve, at the end of the day, Number one, it's funding, as I know it is for so many states across the country. We've got to invest in Pennsylvania's nursing homes. We've got to ensure that we can recruit and retain staff. We've got to ensure that we can stop the closures and keep our doors open, right? And keep keep bringing in or admitting new residents because we've got one of the oldest states in the entire population. Uh, or excuse me, we've got one of the oldest populations in the entire country when it comes to Pennsylvania. We're also working on various workforce development bills and pieces of legislation and initiatives uh, that we hope will create real efficiencies and cut down on bureaucratic red tape so that we can get prospective nurses on the floor right away and we don't have to wait weeks or months to get their license moving. Those are significant lifts. They are significant lifts. Again, in a divided government, in a divided state government, they're going to be challenging. But given what this sector has been through, given the fact that that we've got one of the oldest populations in the entire country, given the fact that over the last few years, we've seen nursing homes close their doors, We've seen nursing homes effectively take beds offline. We've seen nursing homes build wait lists and close their doors to new residents or prospective residents. The time is now, and that's our message. And we're going to be doing some real innovative things in Pennsylvania this year, asking for reimbursement tied to quality outcomes, as other states have done, asking for reimbursement to meet new staffing regulations that we helped achieve. These are things that have to be prioritized this year, or we could face a real access to care crisis moving forward. Hey, Zach, let, let me plug some of the work that, that our members, uh, members and non-members alike, have done in Oklahoma relative to quality, because this is something that may be helpful in, in your deliberations. We, we in 2019, um, through policy, uh, developed an emphasis in four areas. I, I won't go through those. Our listeners are very familiar with those. But to give you some context, how successful that paying for quality can be, 
in weight management as a state relative to our peer state. So relative to the, our peers across the country, in weight management, we were number 47, 48 in the nation. For the last nine months of reporting, we have been number one in the nation in weight management. Quality payments make sense. They do. And that's fantastic. And, you know, it's interesting because we're being asked that question now as we're pursuing a quality-based or quality incentive system. The question that we're getting is show us where it's worked across the country. And whether we're pointing to you and your members in Oklahoma or Minnesota or Ohio, Virginia, Florida, I mean, you name one of the 20-plus states that are doing this. The outcomes and the results are there. And I think for a sector, Steve, uh, you know, feel free to agree or disagree with this. But the message that we're receiving from our legislature, and I think certainly the message that CMS at the federal level is delivering to us, is that we want to see results for our reimbursement. The days of blank checks or colas or just flat out increases are over. Show us what we're getting for this funding, and we want to do just that in Pennsylvania. It, it's only fair. Uh, we are we are stewards of taxpayer dollars, yep. and our investors, which are the taxpayers across our state and nation, they deserve that accountability. It's exactly right. Hey, one other thing I wanted to talk about at the state level, and then we'll shift a little bit to some commentary on this very strenuous Fed environment we're operating in. I, I think a lot of people get the false assumption that Pennsylvania is a 100% urban state. And, and I know nothing could be further from the truth. I, I imagine you have multiple providers who are operating in rural communities. And when you think about the consequences of not investing appropriately in nursing homes in these rural communities, losing their, in some cases, their largest employer, that's devastating economically, not to mention it puts on family members and loved ones and now have to drive a hundred miles round trip just to go visit. I mean, that's, yeah. th this is a community lifeblood issue. That's exactly right. And there's so much I could say, you, you know, when you think of Pennsylvania across the country, most folks think of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and maybe Harrisburg, where we are in the central part of the state. But there is a T if you look at the state of Pennsylvania where there are extremely rural areas, as you noted. And it's interesting, you know, I spoke about my time as a chief of staff for a state representative, and I'll never forget one of the biggest issues that we faced right outside of the city of Philadelphia in our legislative district was traffic. The fact that you couldn't get on the road at 4.30 after people were leaving to go home from work because traffic was so bad. And we were going to solve the traffic problem. And I'll never forget when our state representative came back home from his first week in Harrisburg and we said, okay, can we get things moving on traffic? And he said, Zach, I spoke to colleagues across the state who have exclusively dirt roads in their district. We are not doing anything on traffic. And the point was not all of Pennsylvania is like suburban Philadelphia or the city of Pittsburgh and suburban Pittsburgh. There are very rural areas and there are communities that rely totally on nursing homes, personal care homes or assisted living communities. You know, we have seen closures in Pennsylvania, but Steve, I think what's even more alarming right now is we have many homes that are for sale. There are counties, rural counties in Pennsylvania where every nursing home is for sale right now.
And we worry about continuity of care. We worry about those homes shuttering their doors because to your point, we're already seeing prospective residents travel further and further just to find a nursing home that can admit them. And again, in one of the oldest states in terms of our population in the country, that is a very alarming trend. We can't let that continue. We've got to get support, especially for our rural facilities. And that, that is the perfect transition point um, to a federal issue that I know is keeping you up at night as if you don't have enough to worry about at the state level, your members up at night, your directors of nursing up at night. Uh, this proposed federal staffing mandate, don't, don't feel like you have to spend too much time on it, but my guess is, much like in Oklahoma, you, you've got a great sense of unease about what's being proposed. We do. And just to be clear, my four-year-old and two-year-old daughters keep me up at night. But while I'm up, I am worrying about this. I just want to set that record straight. That, that is a very fair point. <laughs> when, when it comes to the federal mandate, uh, this is something that we have with you and with our colleagues across the country, with the American Healthcare Association, advocated against. When you look at Pennsylvania and what the effects would be right now, only 11% of our nursing homes meet the RN requirement if the federal rule were to go into effect. 3% of our facilities meet the CNA requirement. We know that we would have to hire at least 700 new RNs and 6,500 CNAs, at least. So where do we find those folks? And not to mention that this is an unfunded mandate. For Pennsylvania, that's an unfunded mandate to the tune of about 550 to $600 million. Not to mention, we count LPNs in our staffing levels today and our staffing minimums today. We know that the federal government hasn't made a formal ruling on where LPNs will fall. This would be disastrous. And when we talk about access to care, this is not going to bolster the workforce it's not going to bolster the long-term care continuum. It will result in closures. It will result in artificial uh, lowering of census. It will result in taking beds offline. And in a state like Pennsylvania, again, it could prove to be a total disaster for our aging population. So we're prepared to fight it, and we have been. We, uh, we have as well, just to give you a little bit of parallel for our state, and I'll just speak to the RNs. Um, it would be about 750 to 800 additional RNs uh, that would be required, Zach. And Oklahoma, just to give you some context, ranks 46th in the nation in terms of per capita RNs that currently live and practice here. Wow. Uh, th this, this mandate is a recipe for absolute disaster. It is. And, and Steve, I would just mention, and I think it's important to note for your listeners, our messaging has been that we did this already. In 2022, our governor proposed 4.1 PPD for nursing homes. And we went into a room with the workers unions, with legislative leaders, and with the governor and his administration and said, we can't do 4.1, but let's find common ground. And that's exactly what we did. We found what could work for us. And we raised staffing minimums and instituted staffing ratios for the first time in 20 years. And quite frankly, that's how it should be done. Not with a federal one-size-fits-all mandate, but state-to-state. -state. Find out what works locally and implement it there. 
Well, Zach, we've uh, we've navigated through some professional issues, if you will. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, if we, if you don't mind, to Please. kind of close up. You you may not know this about me, but I uh, I serve as an adjunct faculty member at a local university in leadership classes, and my background is in leadership development. Uh, so I always like to weave in some leadership. Um, context into our conversation. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that are more reflective of your own personal experiences and what you've developed as your career advanced. Really interesting when, when challenged, when those, when those kids are keeping you up at night, you're wondering <laughs> about how am I going to help solve all of these issues uh, that we're wrestling with. What, what's a leadership axiom, a leadership strategy, something that you have gripped onto that you use to help navigate rough decision-making and, and the challenges of leadership? Yeah, I, I, two things I would point out. Number one is, and, and something I've always followed, is lead by example. So even with all the swirling issues, uh, I think it's important that the folks around you see your example see your leadership, see you exhibiting the qualities that you expect of them, showing up early, leaving late, working hard. I think that drives the rest of the team to work even harder and, and really to, to get buy-in from everyone around you, whether it's folks in your association or it's members of your board or it's the advocates across the state. And along those same lines, developing future leaders and and really building a strong team. You know, when I first came into this role, I thought that I had to do so much by myself. But what I've really learned is that if you surround yourself with the right people and people who are willing to take that extra step or go that extra mile, who have innovative ideas, who bring you things, who want to change the way things are done, it's going to lead to success. So I lean so much on the experts on my team and we've built a really strong team here in Pennsylvania and it's really what's allowed us to achieve some great things over the course of the last few years. So, so I, I want to reflect something back to you, Zach, because I, I truly, I, I love those principles that you practice, but I, I want to give you acknowledgement for one piece of culture development that I have noticed about you that is very subtle. But, but something I have appreciated about you since you and I first began to engage you, and that is on the bottom of every email that you send is a note that says something along the lines of the hours that I work on email might be different than yours. <laughs> and I love the message you're sending, which is you, what I'm hearing you say is you're expecting those around you to understand that you value their work-life balance. Yep. And just, just because they may get an email from you at 10.30 p.m., that may not mean you need an immediate response. You are signaling that you respect that they have a professional life and a personal life. Is that a fair reception of your messaging? That's exactly right. And it's not just for our team. It's, again, for the members of our board. It's for legislators or key staff members in the Capitol. You know, when we were really in the midst of the pandemic and, and really in the thick of things in spring and summer and fall 2020. You know, I'm sure like you, I was sending emails at midnight at 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And it got to the point where I said, I need to take a step back and make sure people know that I don't expect a response. 
we're going to work hard at PHCA and we're going to work 24 hours a day, but it doesn't mean that I need everybody doing exactly what we're doing or exactly what I'm doing. And yes, I want to be respectful. I want to give folks that balance. And that's exactly what that signature line says in every email that I send. And what I've been most proud to see is that a lot of our colleagues across the country now have a similar line and folks on our PHCA team have a similar line. And it's really about, as you said, building that culture and acknowledging that we work hard, but there's gotta be a balance there. All right. Well, here, here's your closing question. And that, you know, the way I had this framed, I sent you a guide of some things I might thought I'd do. And, the question it framed, and I use this in all my pods, is what do you wish a young fill-in-the-blank knew that you knew now? Well, Zach, you are young. So <laughs> I'm putting you at a little bit of a disadvantage because in some way you're reflecting on yourself. But go, go back to those first days on the campaign. What, what, what piece of knowledge is kind of ingrained in how you approach the world today that you wish that you had known back in those very early days? Yeah, it's such a great question. It's such an important question. I, it honestly, it goes back to developing the team and building a team. It's understanding the value of listening. And, you know, when you're a campaign manager or whether you're in a role like you and I have, you often think that everyone will immediately look to you to solve everything or have every bright idea or have every new idea. And what I've learned and what I learned back in 2010 on the campaign trail and what I've continued to learn is the value of listening and how important it is bringing those other experts to the table and hearing what they have to say, hearing their ideas hearing their new philosophy philosophy, and utilizing that for strategy. It doesn't always have to be me or you coming up with that new next thing. It can be the team that you've surrounded yourself with, learning from them, listening to them, and building a better product based on that. I wish I had known that years ago. It's taken me years to really learn it and utilize it. But it's so, so important, I believe, for what we do. Zach, you've been an incredible guest. That was, uh, that was no surprise that, that <laughs> when I asked you that you would carry the day. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate your messaging. Just to uh, allay the fears of our respective boards, uh, we've recorded this remotely, so I didn't have to put Zach on a jet and fly him down to Oklahoma City. But I did uh, offer. So I, I told you I would do that if you needed me. You did, and I appreciate that. But I think that uh, using some technology, even though it might it might collapse quality a little bit, I think we still get the message apart. Hey, Zach, uh, I value your friendship. I value your leadership, and I enjoy learning from you. Thanks for sp spending some time with me today. Likewise. Thank you, Steve. All right. This has been Steve Buck, Studio CPO. Thanks for listening. Share with your friends, and we will be back very soon.